Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and the, I am the director of the Global Summitry Project, and you can see all the work we do at the Global Summitry Project at globalsummitryproject.com. I am happy to be with you again today uh, for this uh, podcast. This is with uh, former a Chilean ambassador, Jorge Heine. Uh, this is episode uh, 28 in the NOW series, and we will focus on the Chilean constitutional referendum that was held recently, uh, and uh, generally the state of politics in Latin America. The NOW series, of which this is a part, is just one of three series that we produce under the title Global Summitry. It includes not just the NOW series, but also uh, the uh, Shaking the Global Order series and the Summit Dialogue series. You can find all our podcasts here at the Global Summitry Project uh, and at the website, but you can also find all our podcasts at um, uh, Apple Podcast and also at Spotify, again, under the label uh, Global Summitry. So uh, let me introduce uh, to you our um, guest today uh, in the virtual studio, Jorge Heine. He is uh, currently a research professor at Boston University, uh, the Frederick Pardee School of Global Studies, and he's also a non-resident Wilson Center uh, Global Fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington. Uh, Jorge is a lawyer and IR scholar and diplomat with special interest in international politics of the Global South. Jorge has served uh, previously as an ambassador uh, for Chile uh, to China, to India, and uh, to South America. But in his more research capacity he and um, teaching capacity he has published 17 books, including the uh, upcoming book, Latin American Politics in the New World Order, The Act of Non-Alignment Option. And with others, he's also uh, produced 21st Century Democracy Promotion in the Americas, The Oxford Handbook of Modern Diplomacy, The Dark Side of Globalization, and he's also been a very involved writing many uh, journal articles and uh, book chapters. So it's with uh, great pleasure that I invite into the virtual studio today uh, Ambassador Jorge Heine. So welcome Jorge to the virtual studio. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. I want to take us uh, to your home country, uh, Mm -hmm. Chile, and uh, particularly looking at the consequences of the constitutional referendum vote on September 4th. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, the question I have, though, is maybe you can help us uh, and the audience contextualize exactly, you know, kind of how did how did Chile get there, ultimately getting to a uh, referendum? Of course. Well, I think it's such a um, fascinating case uh, because... Chile, as you may recall, had a big social uprising that took place on 18th October of mm-hmm. 2019 mm-hmm. and then went on for a number of weeks. 
Um, this is something that, you know, we have had uh, quite a, an interesting history, but we had never seen the burning of churches or the looting of supermarkets or the burning and destruction of something like 120 metro stations, like happened in those days. So things were really pretty bad. Uh, they were getting out of hand. Uh, now, uh, the point I would like to make is that there were protests uh, around Latin America and also elsewhere in mm -hmm. those years. But the interesting case of Chile is that only in Chile did uh, these protests lead to a highly institutionalized um, program mm -hmm. to uh, address these social demands and these social issues that led to the uprising in the first place. So on 15 November, when things were really bad, all political parties got together in the National Congress and signed a national agreement, whereby they agreed on basically uh, changing the constitution that was around, it was Pinochet's constitution from 1980, to a new constitution. Mm -hmm. And the only reason the government, led by President Piñera, gave in to this is because the alternative to that was for the government to fall. Things were so bad. Now, we have a presidential system. So, you know, for the government to fall, it's a pretty serious business. It's not like, you know, parliamentary systems. So, uh, under those circumstances, and between a rock and a hard place, uh, the government came in and said, okay, uh, we will give ourselves a new constitution. And therefore, a very detailed sort of gun chart was developed with mm -hmm. an initial referendum uh, on whether the electorate actually wanted a new constitution or not, and what uh, would be the type of uh, constitutional convention that would uh, draft such a constitution. Then have those uh, delegates elected to a constitutional convention, give them a year in which they would come up with a draft, and then submit that draft to the electorate in a, an outgoing referendum, as it were. Mm -hmm. Now, this happened to coincide with the pandemic and with a significant recession in Chile, as well as with about, you know, half a dozen other elections. There were municipal elections, regional elections, parliamentary elections, presidential elections. So you can imagine what uh, travail this was and how difficult it was to have on top of all that, you know, the debate about the a constitutional convention and a constitutional convention in place. So in some ways, it's a miracle that, in fact, the convention delivered a text uh, in due course with some delays because of the pandemic, but that it did so. So in terms of process, that thing went well. But in other ways, it didn't. And those are the reasons it was uh, projected. And we can go into that in a moment, if you wish. Yeah, I, I would, because after, you know, the, the described lengthy process that you've just given us, nevertheless, uh, the vote on September 4th was uh, a 62 percent rejection of the constitutional provisions that had been agreed to to put before the Chilean people. And that, you know, that 62 percent was of 80 percent of all Chileans who voted on the constitutional referendum. 
That's right. So, you know. So, and it's a big question mark is why this would happen. And, the, you know, yeah. the question is even more significant because uh, over the past uh, two centuries, 94% of all such referendums right. that have been held uh, around the world, uh, they have approved the Constitution. Right. So in this sense, Chile is very much an outlier. <laughs> why this? And moreover, as you may know, the initial referendum that kick-started all this, uh, eight, in that referendum, 80% of all Chileans said they wanted a new constitution. Right. And suddenly you get this uh, turnaround. So, and a third element I would add is that, you know, Chile has traditionally been one of the most stable and institutionalized democracies in Latin America. Mm -hmm. So you would have expected, you know, that a constitutional convention would sort of deliver the goods and would, you know, set the course uh, for the country to move forward. Now, why this overwhelming projection? And here I would argue the two things. One of them, the text itself, 388 articles, mm -hmm. 170 pages, looks more like a novel than, you know, an actual constitutional text. Um, you know, a smorgasbord of rights of things that were, you know, put into it um, without really a guiding uh, thread. Some things that were really quite outrageous, eliminating the Senate. The Chilean Senate been around for two centuries. You know, it's been a very important part of our institutional life. Many presidents have come from the Senate and suddenly, you know, it is abolished. The judiciary is weakened. Um, you know, the a lot of power is given to something that is called the, the Congress of Deputies, um, basically changing uh, the uh, balance of power in government. Uh, this Chamber of Deputies, with the elimination of the Senate, uh, becomes a, a very all-powerful chamber, creating all sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, um, the Constitution emphasizes what they call the plurinational nature of the Chilean state emphasizing the rights of Aboriginal peoples that have been long, you know, uh, abandoned in uh, Chilean the previous constitution, the current constitution doesn't even mention Chile's Aboriginal peoples. That gives you an idea of how bad the situation was and is. But some would argue this was taken, yeah. you know, to an extreme. And, um, for example, the notion that the Aboriginal peoples will have their own uh, judiciary, um, that they would have the right to veto or what happens in their land, all sorts of questions that you know, people have reservations about. Right to abortion was enshrined in the Constitution. That's right. But many people that are pro-choice would say, well, uh, that is a matter of legislation. Mm. shouldn't necessarily be in the Constitution. So that is one thing. But I would argue that as important as the actual text was the, what happened during the convention itself. You see, I and mean, what happened is that when the Congress had to choose the mechanism, the electoral mechanism whereby the constitutional delegate, the delegates to the constitutional convention would be elected, the normal thing would have been you have political parties that run their candidates. Mm -hmm. But political parties, you know, were at the time and still are quite unpopular as they are in many countries around the world these days. And there was a strong, you know, upsurge of 
demands from so-called independents that said, we would like to be able to run for this convention under the same conditions as political parties do. Right. Meaning they wanted lists of independents. Now, my view is that if you are independent, you're independent. You cannot have a party list of independents, which is an oxymoron. <laughs> so we ended up with these party lists of independents, which were often no more than WhatsApp groups, monthly yeah. crowds of people that had little in common, no experience, no expertise. And essentially, they got a lot of votes, and they essentially ended up running the convention, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. making, in many ways, you know, fools of themselves. There was one, one of them who faked he had cancer, right? And that was a big calling card. He was almost elected president of the convention. I mean, this gives you an idea how bad. Another voted from the shower, and videotaped, you know, the remote voting on the floor of the convention. That, those kinds of things, people said, well, this is not serious. You know, here we are paying these guys for mm -hmm. writing a constitution and they are creating uh, a big mess. As if, and then in its infinite wisdom, there's this notion that everybody should have a turn at the helm. So after six months, they elected a new chair of the convention, you know, all sorts of things yeah. that really didn't help, you know, so and that created a very bad impression on public opinion. Right. So oh, here we are. I mean, obviously, in, in in terms of Chile's immediate political situation, the question is, OK, what uh, do they do? And more particularly, what does the government under Gabriel Boric, uh, who is a, a new prime minister, uh, basically, new, president, yes. new president, sorry, uh, basically um, a coalition of the left that he's sure. uh, that running. So. You know, he immediately said, OK, so I'm going back to the Congress and we'll we'll get a pathway. But the concern has to be that, uh, you know, it, it may not be so obvious, the pathway. And if they don't move quickly or if he doesn't move quickly, uh, then citizens may become quite frustrated. So so what? where do we go from here? In sure, Chile? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, so uh, there's been some uh, pushback from some um, parliamentarians and some members of various political parties, particularly on the right, that have said, look, this constitutional and convention system does not work. We should appoint a committee of experts for them to draft a constitution. So essentially going to the back to the smoke-filled rooms, which is what led us to the constitution we have now in the first place. You know? uh, but there is really no um, appetite in the country for something like that. You know, once you reach these uh, type of mechanisms, it's very difficult uh, to go back. You know, the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've been picking up from uh, the various meetings that have been held, I think the lesson has been learned by the political parties and by uh, the government. And the ideas that are being considered is to elect a new convention, uh, but uh, with uh, party lists uh, as opposed to, you know, independence. Independence, And yeah. with, uh, say, national closed lists that would allow the political parties to include experts mm -hmm. in those lists. I see. And if you run national lists, closed lists, you are able to include the experts and make sure they are actually elected. Probably a shorter period of time, uh, perhaps working from some sort of 
previous draft. Uh, they could draw on the existing uh, text and also have inputs from other experts and, and, and get it going. So that's what uh, is on the table. All right. So here we have Boric. I mean, how much has the failure, he was a, a proponent of the, sure. of the referendum. Um, how much uh, has the rejection of that damaged him? And, and does it mean, for, for instance, that he on the left will be unable to bring forward other reforms that he had, had looked for, uh, tax reform. He was going to try to create a more equitable system of yes. tax in Chile. How much is that now uh, at risk because of the referendum's re uh, rejection? Well, there is no doubt that this has been quite a body blow to President Boric himself mm -hmm. and to the mm -hmm. uh, ruling uh, coalition. So that's number one. Number two, obviously, its program has been uh, weakened as well. The possibilities that uh, he has of enacting things like tax reform, pension reform, uh, are now less than they were you know, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the, the other problem uh, that he has, and this is it's a very interesting case, you've pointed to his age, you know, and many of his uh, party uh, comrades, Mm -hmm. are, you know, young men and women in their mid-30s. You know, it's, it's a fascinating case. You know, in Chile, there are three cabinet ministers that are in the presidential palace, the offices there, La Moneda. You know, that's the Minister of Home Affairs, the Minister of the Presidency, which is the equivalent of the uh, White House Chief of Staff, mm -hmm. and the government spokesperson. Those three, and President Boric himself, the four of them, 10 years ago, were student leaders at mm. various universities. So in the matter of 10 years, they have, you know, achieved this remarkable thing. They are now running the country. Now, that is fine and well, but uh, it's different to run a campaign than to run a government. And they have found themselves in a bit of an awkward situation in which, uh, you know, they won the government, but um, they don't have the experience to do what is needed. And therefore, in the recent cabinet change that President Boric did. He appointed as Minister of Home Affairs, Carolina Toa, which is one of the stalwarts of the previous uh, ruling coalition, the Concertación, that ruled Chile for, you know, 20-some years. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Minister of Finance is a member of the Socialist Party, also very much of that group. So the point I'm trying to make, Alan, is that there is a certain generational tension here. I you see. have the president and his closest advisors, and they are young men and women in their mid-30s. And actually, much of what they did in their campaigns was to uh, denounce what had been done by the center-left governments from 1990 till, you know, uh, 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, and now they find themselves running the government, and they have concluded that they have to draw on you know those very same uh, uh -huh. leaders and cater and technocrats that they denounce because well running a government is difficult and you need expertise and you need experience fair enough so uh, you know chile uh, with a government on the left seems to be in tune with a uh, that a drift in politics in latin america i'm taking you out to the wider picture here where you've got uh basically uh in on the left uh argentina bolivia colombia 
um, Honduras, Mexico, Peru, possibly uh, Brazil again, uh, depending on how badly this election goes sure. in, in Brazil. I mean, is uh, I mean, there seemed to be this drift to the left in Latin America. Are we now, though, at you know a peak? Is this all these different concerns and mm. issues now likely to mean that uh, you know the shift to the left may have reached its um, its uh, top, so to speak? Yes. Well, they, they are, it certainly means that the largest countries in Latin America are now in the if it happens in Brazil, if Lula is re-elected right. in October, that, of course, would mean a seismic change. Uh, now, what is important here to understand is this, in some ways, replicates what was the first pink wave in Latin America of the early 2000s, when you know many countries uh, veered uh, to the left, to the left. And, okay. did, and did so for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. Now, what does this second pink wave uh, entail? In some ways, it is similar. Some are the same. I mean, Lula would be, you know, part of the same. But in other ways, it is different. President Boric, for example, embodies, as I said earlier, a different perspective, a younger generation, uh, which is quite different from, you know, the left leaders in Chile in the in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. What makes this also a bit different is that uh, the crisis in Latin America is so deep. And um, the possibility of, uh, these governments staying for, you know, say 10, 15 years, as they did in the past, is has been much reduced. You know, okay. what is much more likely now is that you have an alternation. Mm-hmm. You have they serve for one term and things are so bad, um, the voters go with the opposition. The other thing that happened is that the previous Pink Wave was favored by high commodity prices. Uh, you know, today, the international economic situation is so fickle that mm-hmm. it's a much more uh, complex international environment, which will not make it easy for um, these governments to handle things. You know, the countries have been hit by the pandemic. Uh, ECLAC, the Economic Commission for Latin America, said that 2020 was the worst crisis in Latin America in 120 years, which gives you an idea of how bad things are. Uh, in Latin America, with 8% of the world's population. Latin America had 30% of the world's fatalities from COVID. Hmm. 1.7 million people. Now, these are just the official figures. You know, unofficially, they are obviously much more. But this goes to show how bad things are and how big the challenge these governments are facing. Fair enough. I mean, let's take it out one last step, which is kind of the international situation. We know that uh, there's been obviously a growing rivalry between the major powers, a return to geopolitics, particularly between um, China and the United States. How do you think that's impacted on the politics of Latin America? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, And it, what it did, of course, was to exacerbate the problems that the region was facing. Because in addition to things like the pandemic and the recession, countries in the region were being pressured uh, to move or one way or the other, uh, both by Washington and by Beijing. And that is why uh, we published a book with two colleagues, Carlos Portin and Carlos Ominami. It was published in November of 2021 in Spanish in Chile. 
uh, with the title Active Non-Alignment in Latin America, a doctrine for the new century, in which we set forth the notion that we should, Latin American countries should take a page from the non-aligned movement of the uh, 50s and 60s, adapted to the new uh, century, and steer their own course, not let themselves be uh, pushed into aligning themselves either with Washington or with Beijing, but rather, uh, you know, charting their own course, their own way. And that has found tremendous resonance. This book that I mentioned had chapters by five former uh, foreign ministers mm-hmm. in Latin America from the leading countries. Um, and it's really caught on. It was launched in five different countries. Today, I had a, a session in, in Costa Rica and we'll have another this evening. Um, and the book will come out in English in later this year. We'll publish in London by Anthem. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that this is something that has really caught on at a time when Latin America is in serious trouble. Um, this appears to be a one way in which the region can deal with this very significant crisis. So uh, kind of last question. Yes. The impact. So how does the Biden administration, though, in part reacting to uh, you know, the presence of, of China increasingly yes. in Latin America. Where do you see Biden foreign policy going in Latin America and what is likely to be its impact then on, on the region? Yes, great question. Well, let me say the following. Uh, obviously, the uh, policies followed towards Latin America by the uh, Trump administration yes. left much to be desired. <laughs> uh, President Trump only set foot in Latin America once in those four years, and that was only because the G20 was meeting in Buenos Aires. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gone. He, in fact, skipped the summit of the Americas held in Lima in 2018 for the first time that any U.S. president did that. So, point I'm trying to make is there were high expectations for the presidency of uh, Mr. Biden. Mm -hmm. Mr. Biden himself knows Latin America well. He visited Latin America something like 17 times while he was vice president. He knows a lot of the people, a lot of the leaders there. Uh, but I must say, in all frankness, um, there's been a bit of a disappointment. Um, a lot of people see that the policies that have been followed towards Latin America by the Biden administration are sort of trump light uh, without the obnoxious rhetoric. But otherwise, uh, the substance pretty much the same um, towards Cuba, towards Venezuela, um, no changes there. Uh, basically, letting Haiti twist slowly, slowly in the wind. And uh, the culmination of that was the summit of the Americas in uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be held in Washington in April of 2021, which in some ways would have been a great occasion to meet all the new leaders for the incoming administration. But it was kicked down the road. It was held in June, as you know, in June of uh, 2022 in Los Angeles. And in, in its infinite wisdom, the Biden administration decided that it would not invite three Latin American countries, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And that uh, went down like a lead balloon mm-hmm. in the region. The net result was that out of 35 leaders in the region, only 23 attended the summit in Los Angeles. As you, as a student of summits, knows very well, a key indicator of the summit is how many leaders actually show up 
In Panama in 2015, 34 out of the 35 showed up. And in Los Angeles, only 23 did so. Um, tells us much of what we need to do. I hope this can be an object lesson uh, to the Biden administration that Trump light is not a productive approach, but we'll see. Well, final question. And, you know, what we are seeing, though, uh, at, at least in the Latin America, U.S. kind of perspective, is a, a significant and dramatic inflow of immigrants coming from Latin America, right? Absolutely, so yes. um, Mexico, the Northern Triangle countries, um, yes. large numbers, more unusually, and because of circumstances in these countries from Venezuela, mm -hmm. from Cuba, Absolutely. Colombia, Absolutely. Yes. Nicaragua. So, mm -hmm. you know, and even folks coming now from Brazil and obviously from Haiti, as you mentioned, and Ecuador. So what impact do you think this inflow uh, of immigrants from Latin America, why number of countries is going to have on American policy? Well, it, you know, this reminds me of the uh, story of a graffiti I once saw on a wall in Colombia, in which it said, uh, Yankee, go home and take me with you. <laughs> uh, but uh, the larger, larger point is, of course, uh, immigration, and not just, you know, in, in the United States, but in South America, uh, there are, I think, a couple of million Venezuelans in Colombia. You can imagine what this, that does to, you know, Colombia and how it has to cope with it. So um, migration has become a very significant issue. Uh, obviously, it is uh, deployed by Republicans. In, in the American political system, mm -hmm. uh, very much against uh, the Biden administration. It is, it is a very serious uh, issue. Um, but I would argue that, you know, as long as the social conditions in Latin America continue to be what they are, because of the crisis that I mentioned to you earlier, one out of three Latin Americans today lives under the poverty line. So there are, you know, objective reasons why this happens. And uh, those issues uh, need to be addressed. And let me just, uh, one final point. Uh, you know, I have I followed uh, Haiti uh, for a long time. I published a book on it when I was at, at CG. Um, and the situation in Haiti is getting really out of hand. And you can imagine after the murder of the president, of President Moise, and the earthquake that took place last year. Mm -hmm. And what worries me, I see from the Biden administration, but also from, you know, the rest of the countries in, in the continent. Very little concern about what is happening there. And you can imagine what the migration pressures from Haiti are right now and uh, will be in the future. It's essentially, Haiti is moving towards uh, a failed state mm -hmm. uh, and things are really bad. So I'm very concerned about that. Well, I hate to, to end on such a, a downbeat note, but I really want to thank you, Jorge, for doing this examination, which I think is quite helpful in understanding uh, this very important uh, region for us. I really appreciate your being willing to sit down with us on, on the issues. Thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>